This is Speaking Easy Theology with Chris Green. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making time for this. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, good to see you again and good to meet the other other two guys here. Yeah, yeah. So David is with me, Father David, Father Christopher. So I thought what we would do is engage your new book. I'm going to start in just a moment by having you talk about it. But engaging your new book, re-engaging it as a theologian, a Jensonian in particular, David engaging it as a biblical scholar, Pauline scholar in particular, and then Father Christopher engaging it as a priest. We brought him on for the Christ-like response to your book. <laughs> and David and I will be, you know, the unlike <laughs> fellows, yeah, academics in the worst sense. No, no, no. Really, thank you for making time for this. I really appreciate oh, it's, it. Oh, it's a pleasure. So let's start there. Let's start with the book. What is it? How did it come to be? When is it going to be available? Like, just give everybody a, a thumbnail sketch of what the project is. Uh, the book is called A Quid Without Any Quo, Gospel Freedom According to Galatians. It is out right now. Um, and it is. it started out as a series of sermons uh, that mm-hmm. I preached my way through Galatians um, and then turned into uh, turned into a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's me, me working my way through Paul's letter a piece at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things I love about the book and I love about you and your work in general is the ways in which theology and, you know, Jensen's line about preaching is the proof of theology. Like that's, that's how you test a theology, right? Does, is how, what happens when you preach it? Not does it preach well in in a sheerly homiletic sense, but does the gospel happen when you preach? So maybe we could start with this before we get to the book itself. What happened when you preached the series? Like what, how did, how did people in the, the, the audience, your community, your congregation, how, how did it land with it? Um, you know, it's funny because um, I'm reading Jensen's book on Jonathan Edwards right now. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, I was reading a section where he talks about Edwards. When Edwards critiques Arminianism, really what he's critiquing is a kind of burdensome religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I, yeah, I, I wanted to tackle Galatians um, because I think in some ways, Romans is overly familiar to people. Um, but it seems like in histories of moments of revival in the history of the church, this this message that comes out in Galatians and in Romans has been liberating for people. Yeah. Um, and 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 I, and, I, and I think as a pastor, I think especially like a pastor in the mainline church, the gospel has been so assumed that it often gets lost. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I, yeah. So people, this message in Galatians landed deeply with a number of people. Hmm. And did it land deeply? I'm, I'm assuming you mean it was liberating for them. W- were there people who were scandalized by it? And if so, like, what did that, <laughs> what scandalized them? Um, well, I'm a United Methodist, uh, and so <laughs> um, enough said. We yeah, we don't have to. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean it, it really. You know, people get really tight sphinctered when you tell them um, they really are free, um, <laughs> and and they really don't believe you uh, when you encourage them to trust that God will do a good work through them. 
mm. um, ap- mm. apart from hortatory and oughts and shoulds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the one of the passages from Jensen I was going to draw up, and I, I will later read it, but where he talks about the ways in which the gospel precisely to be itself, precisely in order to be itself, can never be said the same way twice. Mm. And he makes the point in that context that it's because the moment we proclaim a word, the word of the gospel in ways that are liberating, our enemy and the, dis, the kind of the distortion in our souls twists it into a kind of scheme or a system that works against the freedom declared in the gospel, right? And what you're saying here about the Methodist tradition is the ways in which Wesley's notion of the holy life, the call to entire sanctification, how that was at a time and should now be liberating. Craig Keene, the Nazarene theologian, has has argued about this, I think, eloquently, that the doctrine of justification, I mean, the doctrine of sanctification should be liberating, but that's not actually how it's played out for much mm-hmm. of the history of the Methodist movement. So I, I don't think that's an accident. And for you to return to justification, like there's this tension between justification and sanctification in Wesley himself that is yeah. in all forms of Wesleyanism. And I think that may be, that's what you're describing yet again. I, I would argue that it runs right back to Wesley's initial Aldersgate experience, right? Yeah. They're reading, <laughs> they're reading Luther's preface to the commentary on Romans and Wesley feels himself liberated by it. But immediately in that, when he testifies about his heart being strangely warm, he doubts and the the Moravians have to gather around him and reassure him. No, no, no. Like this is a, this is an external (laughs) word. Just, just trust it. But like the rest of Wesley's life and the rest of the life of the Wesleyan tradition, I would say, I would argue is that tension between hearing a word of liberation the word of justification, but immediately becoming anxious about the way in which that sanctification is taking place. Does that seem, does that seem right to you? I I think that's absolutely true. And it's a, it's a way of, I think we treat sanctification in a way that makes us the active agents of that process. Um, And and so I think that's a, and so, and so then before long, we're really preaching about ourselves. Mm. Mm. One more question about the preaching, and then we'll get to the book proper. In the series, how many sermons did you do? Do you remember? Uh, is it one a chapter, or did you do more than one? Yeah, yeah, it was one. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, it was a, it was a summer, summer's worth of Sundays. Was there anything in the book that really stumped you or left you kind of wounded you? I, I often find as a preacher, there are texts. You know, whether it's in a series or or even just assigned by the lectionary, I was thinking about this just yesterday. There are ways in which I, I end up getting wounded by text I'm trying trying to preach. Was there anything like that in this series for you? Um, it, it's yeah. I think um, there's uh, there's a chapter in here about um, justification coming through the faithfulness of Christ. Um, and I was haunted by uh, the, th- the memory of a little girl's burial that I had done mm. right around the same time. Mm. Um, and so the holding together, um, the promise being the, 
obedience and faithfulness of Jesus at a moment when it's easy to slip into despair. Um, that yeah. that landed for me in a particular acute way. Well, thank you for writing. Thank thank you for engaging us on it. I'm going to ask David if he would, as I mentioned earlier, David's work is is on Galatians. And so I, I think maybe we can start with what what reading Galatians is about. Like, what are we talking about when we talk about Paul's theology of justification that you were preaching? So, David, if you're if you're willing, to, I'd like you to wade in. I have an echo of a Fleming Rutledge question in my head. I'm going to reform for Galatians if that's okay. No, 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 no feels, please. No, just appropriate. Any, any references to Fleming are are welcome here. Part of the show, whether she knows it or not. So. Absolutely. I, I love her question about the cross where she says, the question we really need to ask is, what does the cross do? Uh, whereas we spend a lot of the time talking mm-hmm. about what the cross shows us. And, and, and mm-hmm. she asks this question, does the cross come to show us something or does the cross come to do something? And of course, she's heavily influenced um, by J.L. Martin's sort of apocalyptic take on Paul and all of that, which I too am. And as I was reading your book, I found an echo of that question which i i maybe begins us in the conversation at some level a question about the gospel and you know the same question about the cross to the question of the gospel is what does the gospel do or or does the gospel in paul's mind do something because uh, i was framing it a little bit like this is the gospel just something that tells us that something has been done or is the gospel something which asks us to do something? I think I know your answer to that question. <laughs> and, um, or, or is the gospel actually doing something in us? So it's sort of, I, I, does that make sense in how I'm framing that oh, question? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah and yeah, I'm just yeah. be curious, and your take on that. No, I, I, I think um, it's funny. So, like Chris started with Jensen. I think, um, you, you know, Jensen has an essay on on like uh, the preacher and certain dogmas or something like that. Um, when he talks about preaching, that I, I think it's yeah, I, I think um, the gospel sets people free um, as a word of comfort, uh, a word of judgment, a word of you know, there's all these things. And and I think the purpose of preaching is not to repeat what Paul said, but to try to in obedience to the text, do what Paul did mm. um, or to, to, you know, listening to the text, allow the text to, to speak with different words um, and create the same sort of existential encounter with God. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I like, I like that. I, Cause I think that, you know, for me, because I also work in, you know, well, all of my life actually is in local church sort of work. So my predominance of expressing this is uh, is is preaching, and and I feel that tension, that that need to to set people free, which is this announcement, I think, of that work which the gospel has has done. Um, I wonder if sometimes what happens is we think about the gospel in in sort of exclusively soteriological terms, if we think about mm-hmm. it as a, as a salvation event. And and I think where I see people generally get tangled up in that, and by people, I don't mean writers. This is not a passive-aggressive dig at your book. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, the, the listener to the sermon is 
so so we hear the gospel. It's this announcement that something has been done for us that sets us free. What now does the gospel expect, right? And, and obviously your your take is, you know, quid without a, a, a call. But, um, but at the same time, you've got really from about kind of, you know, early in chapter five through to about verse 11 of chapter six, Paul now shaping expectations at some level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is, these are almost the weeds that we get stuck in as preachers because we, we come to those texts with this idea of this free gospel that requires nothing of us. And because we think about the gospel in purely salvific terms, it's amazing how often I hear a sermon series flip at that point. And it's, okay, so now's the stuff that we've got to do, which mm-hmm. I personally don't think is what Paul's doing in Galatians. But but uh, do you sense and feel those weeds in Galatians? And, and how do you how do you navigate that? Or, or, or do you want to speak to that a little bit? Because I think that's at some level at the core of the question uh, that we're where the reason the ideas that you're pushing are still needing to be pushed a couple of thousand years after Galatians seems to be that question of what do we do with Paul's moral instruction? What do we do with Paul's ethics for, for a bit, for one of a better term? Yeah, I think, um, and, and I, I think, you know, the gospel is a word that gives us Christ, right? As Luther mm-hmm. said. And so I, I think the challenge as both preachers and, and, and probably readers of scripture is um, to not, not um, get lost in the weeds um, mm-hmm. that even, even in passages of moral exhortation that happen in Paul's letters, um, nevertheless, each sermon has to in some way give a promise, um, mm-hmm. you know? And so there are, there can be implications of the promise. Um, and, and, and I, you know, and I agree. I think I agree with, you know, like Stanley Harewas that, that we, to the extent we hear these instructions as, as burdensome is an indication that we're still stuck in our sin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that there is, uh, a sense in which following Jesus is, um, an adventure. Um, not, not, not uh not 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 a list of stuff we got to do description of a different life that god is making possible Mm. so so dig that a little and and chris and christopher cut me off uh by all means here because these are the things i love to to spend lots of time talking about dig a little bit further into that with me jason if you if you don't mind the the question of of a list you phrased that really well a list of things that christ has made possible i think is is, is how, you, how you said it that how do you think paul is working that out because i think this for me is the is the nub of the issue around galatian ethics actually is is paul is describing something here and i i think our failed readings of galatians have caused us to take it as a shopping list of things mm-hmm. i now need to go and do uh, so you know we get the works of the flesh here are all the things i shouldn't do and then we get this, you know, fruits of the spirit. Here are now all the things I should do. And then that's a terrible reading of Galatians. Mm-hmm. But it, but it's it's the one that we seem but it's, to really hard it's endemic to, like, to like children's Sunday school material. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's, yes. Uh, yeah. And 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 you know the neither Jew nor Greek um, that gets turned into moralizing um, mm-hmm. 
adult mm-hmm. listeners. Um, yeah, and I think you, you, like an apocalyptic reading of Galatians, right, would properly read those as descriptions of uh, what is most real in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that the distinctions we want to erect between people don't actually exist anymore because Christ has destroyed them. Um, and so uh, we, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to live according to those deceits. Um, you know, the fruit of the spirit is importantly a passive image um, that it's, you know, we're not the ones doing it. Um, and so we can rejoice and look forward to the fact that um, this is something that God is doing um, for his spouse, the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, 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 so, yeah. So I think, um, I think I like the language of exemplification better when it comes to thinking about what does the Christian life of holiness look like? Um, you know, how do we corroborate what we say mm-hmm. by our, our life together? Um, and so I, I, that takes it out of ought and shoulds. Mm. Mm. And, and I think, I mean, my take, uh, and I, I probably play my my card as a lifelong Pentecostal in in this at this point, but but my take that I'm wrestling through at the moment with Galatians is how that's a work of the Spirit, actually. So if there is, uh, you know, it's, I, I remember somebody said to me years ago, and, and I, I I've never forgotten it, even through my PhD work on Galatians, that that you you can't grow fruit, right? It was a fruit farming concept that all you do is look after trees and, and healthy trees produce fruit. And and they drew this distinction as a farmer on this, this works of the flesh versus fruits of the spirit. So we don't get this double exchange of one type of work for another mm-hmm. type of work, but we, we let go of one type of work and replace it with consequence of being rooted in Christ. Uh, and so I think that there's a way of working through what Paul's doing here to see these are, consequences of the 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 christ life the you know this sort of sense of it's no longer i that live but christ that lives in me and 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 almost i wonder and i'd be curious your thoughts on this whether what we're asking the congregation is not be more loving be more joyful be more kind but start to look out for love kindness joy self-control becoming real in your life as a result of the gospel's work in you rather than your work to try and achieve the gospel i don't know if that tracks with with your way yeah and i think i mean and and you know thinking about the spirit and jesus that if the risen jesus are his people gathered around him in word sacrament um the fruit i mean this this is a description of what we can expect our shared life together to look like, you know, you know, the yeah. more and more we, we, we gather around the groom. Yeah. 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 No, so I like, like that. I like that. It's like a description of our marriage. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Isn't um, Jason, isn't that like Hauerwas makes a similar point, right? When he's writing about, or maybe it was a lecture he gave on Bonhoeffer in the Sermon on the Mount, like at Wheaton years and years ago. Yeah. Like that I've listened to it so many like, times I could, I could like probably redo it. <laughs> well, then you know, the word. line is great. So it's, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's something like, uh, or at least the way I've internalized it is that like, you know, he doesn't call us, um, 
like figure out how to be the light of the world, right? Or, or, or the city on the hill, but like by virtue of the fact that the creative word of God um, says this, names us as such, these people gathered around Christ, that it, it's a creative word. It's a liberating word. It makes us into this, right? Some, something like that. Yeah. 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 And, and that's important, I think, because, you know, Stanley and, and Bonhoeffer's point in that is, is that you can't separate the personal work of Christ. Right. Um, yeah, think, yeah, right. In the Sermon on the Mount, you get Jesus. Right? And I think one of the ways you can think about different traditions and denominations is, is <laughs> like the different ways that we're, we're separating the personal work of Christ. Um, and, yeah. and so I think you know, holding those two together um, is really important. Yeah. Well, if I may kind of jump in here, hopefully it's not too, too hard of a change, but I, I, there is a question that I have about, about something in, in the book, Jason, and it's, it's early on this great story that you tell about this uh, student who's doing a, in a comparative religions class at George Mason and, um, and comes in and, you know, sort of meets you and, uh, you know, this is for an assignment, right? So, so Mm -hmm. she's kind of asking her questions and you're, you're telling her a bit about the church and, you know, kind of what y'all do. And I'll just read quickly a couple of uh, bits of this, you know, but she's sort of, you're telling her you preach and, you know, we preach from here. We hear the word of God from here. You know, we, we preach over here and she says, how do you decide what scripture to preach? And you say, well, the text determines the sermon, but we believe every passage points us to Christ, to the gospel. So in theory, every sermon should be a variation on that same theme. She's like, well, I'm not following. And it just so happens it's the prodigal son, right? The parable of the prodigal son. So you, you walk her through the story. It's great. If I had more time, I would just read it. It's there's so much. that's wonderful here, but she hears the story, right? Comes to the end of it. She's kind of astounded. And she says, you say that every story in the Bible points to Jesus. Where is he in the story? Then? Oh, that's easy. I said, you said, Jesus is the fatted calf whose sole purpose is to die in order for the spendthrift father to throw a party for his undeserving son. I could read it on her face. Horrible, horrible, horrible. If that's true, she said, then that's why I could never be a Christian. And your point, the point that you make from here is that she says no to the gospel because of the gospel's offensiveness. And you say, she said no to the Christian, she said no to Christianity for the right reason, not because Christians are partisan, not because we're hypocritical or judgmental, a judgmental, all these wrong reasons, but for the right reason. And so if I may, what I wanted to press a little bit, I'm thinking about, you know, people I pastor or people that come in, come in and out of, of the church where I am is Are you, are, are we sure that it's the offensiveness of the gospel that made her walk away? Um, like, is, is it, is it her fault that she can't see the justice? I mean, maybe there's a, a kind of injustice that she's right to want to reject, but she's not understanding God's justice. Does, does that make sense? Oh yeah, that makes sense. And I, and I, no, it's not her fault. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, th- that that kind of learning only comes through 
time and relationship. Yeah. Um, and so, so I don't mean to judge her. No, no, no. Yeah. I don't, I don't um, take it like that. Um, but it is a, it is a word of judgment, I think for, uh, Christians, um, who take, who take that word for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is. And I think part of, part of what I feel is what we, all of us, or at least in, let's say the kind of cultural spheres that I'm most familiar with are, are up against in terms of our own indoctrination <laughs> and what that, how that shapes our vision and what we, what we can see and not see. I mean, even what we can imagine or not imagine. And this, the strangeness of God's life among us, the strangeness of God's justice, right? That pastorally, we're always coming up against this. I mean, we're saying something and it sounds absurd. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, uh, it's funny. There's um, one of the one of the things I like about my church right now is we do have some homeless people who come to worship, mm. um, and you know, so they they don't know that they're supposed to button up their feelings in church. Um, yeah. and, and so there's one there's one guy, Randy. Um, I know if in any any worship service, if I'm going to make even an oblique reference to the parable of the prodigal son, he's going to start weeping. There's just something uh, timeless about that particular story. Um, mm-hmm. That that it, yeah, it's just remarkable. But I, I, I think yeah, I, I mean, the word of the cross is a stumbling block, um, even for religious people, right? And so um, if we I lose the offensive. Maybe only for religious people, <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's the Jensen influence talking again. I mean, there's so many different lines of reflection I want to at least suggest here, whether we get to them or not. Something you said about the parable of the prodigal son as a story. I think we we need to have a be able to hold all this together. That's true. And at the same time, in the Gospels, that is not a story. It's an aspect of a story. So in the text of the Gospels, the prodigal son is a character in a larger story. Yeah, yeah. There is no parable of the prodigal son as a story in the Gospels. But in the church's preaching tradition and spiritual tradition broadly, there is a parable of the prodigal son. And I think we can affirm both. We just need to have an awareness of those are different things. Yeah. yeah they're, they're related. But they're different things. What you're preaching is the traditional parable of the prodigal son. The story in the Gospels is a story about a family that gets fractured and is not healed by the time the story is over. Mm-hmm. But it's not. And a it's story. a story, and it's a story in response to the Pharisees grumbling uh, prior. And so you see, it's. I mean, it's a good example of preaching, right? That, that Jesus is trying to. Uh, he's he's offering a word. Um, that then induces this, mm-hmm. this the same response. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's that line of thought is related to what was raised earlier by David's question about how to read Galatians, like preaching from Galatians and explicating what Paul is doing in Galatians are different things. I think your exact mm-hmm. words were the preacher's job is not to restate what Paul said. 
or at least not necessarily the preacher's job. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think we have a, a deep enough appreciation for how all of that can hold, that it's possible and entirely appropriate for you to preach a sermon from the parable of the prodigal son and for someone to say, there is no parable of the prodigal son, <laughs> right? Like yeah, textually, yeah. there's not, like there isn't one. There is a parable that includes a character that is prodigal. But mm-hmm. so I think maybe comment a little bit about that, like ways in which both of those things can hold. And as Christians, I would argue that both of those things should hold because you're talking about the text itself. And then you're talking about the ways in which Christ has made use of that text in the forming of his people across time. Yeah. I mean, I, I would like to be interested to hear what you guys say. I, I what that calls up in my head is, is, um, you know, Galatians is a short letter uh, that Paul is dictating such that he like backtracks uh, famously in part of it to correct himself um, and is meant to be heard in one sitting, like all of you know his other correspondence. And so um, I think we do a great disservice to scripture generally, but to the epistles, especially when we break it down and, and just, plod our way through it verse by verse, word by word, um, often imputing probably more meaning to each individual word choice than, than Paul ever intended. Um, and, and so, you know, well, we, I don't think, we miss the forest for the trees. I think what I would argue is not necessarily that we're wrong to do that. We're wrong to think that's what Paul wanted us to do. That's what, yeah. Yeah. You know, like the, I, I, again, I'm, I would kind of argue for maximalism here. Like there's, there's the use the church has made of the text with those kinds of close readings. I think that's fine. All well and good. It's just where, what ends up happening in our circles is we, we insist, Oh, that's what Paul was trying to do. right? (laughs) And And that the right, and that's what leads us to thinking absurdly that every good reading of Paul will yield the same response. Like it'll yield the same outcome. But if we were reading rightly, if we just had our methodology in order, then every reading of Paul would figure out what Paul really meant, you know, and I, that's just not how I would say that's not how texts work, but that's also not how the spirit works. That's not how the people of God are formed. And, and it's, um, I mean, I think it's really important, um, you know, like Jensen's point that insofar as we think about the authority of scripture, functionally, the old Testament should have more authority because absolutely. it did for Jesus and the apostles. Absolutely. And so, you know, like, so it's, I think when it comes to preaching from like Galatians, uh, we, we have to remember that what was most important was the message that Jesus lives with death behind him. And that, you know, Galatians, if you, like, these are, these are then necessary supplemental material mm-hmm. to support that simple message in our that's lives. Right. Yeah, that, and that's a great segue um, to, Jensen on justification. So I, I don't want you to hear this or anyone else to hear this as, oh, you should have written a book that included more Jensen. That's not what I mean. <laughs> well, the problem is I wrote it uh, like, and then I, I got this Chris Green book uh, in the mail. And then, and then I started like rereading all the Jensen I read in seminary and didn't understand. Yeah. Um, well, and I, now I'm at a point, I'm old enough now where I do understand it. So. Yeah. Well, it would be interesting. So I, what I'd like to do now for, for a bit, is just kind of present you with what 
Jensen says about justification and you tell me, yeah, that's what I'm doing or maybe not quite. And why? I think that would be interesting. So he, there, there are several pieces from Jens that I'll reference. One is this little book called Lutheran mm-hmm. slogans. You might've seen it. Um, uses and abuses of Lutheran slogans. And so he just works his way through justification by faith, the priesthood of all believers, justification by faith apart from works as its its own little slogan. Um, The first chapter, which is wonderful is the problem with slogans. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's terrific work. I mean, it's, it's a, you, you could read it in one sitting easily. I mean, at one brief sitting, but it's, Spectacular. So in, in, as always with Jens, I think. So in this particular chapter on justification, he's emphasizing the by faith part. And he points out that as a lifelong Lutheran, what he had been told Luther says about faith <laughs> is not in fact what Luther says about faith. <laughs> so like one of the problems we have is, and this is a, something that took me a long time to learn. And I learned it from Jens. And that is, we tend to think, like when we're thinking ecumenically, we tend to think that the problem is various people are overattached to their tradition. And what I learned from Jensen is that's never true. People are not overattached to their, their own tradition. They're overattached to a mis- to a kind of distortion or misapprehension of their own tradition. The problem is not people are, you know, too Lutheran or too Methodist or too Catholic. The problem is that they're bad Catholics, bad Lutherans, bad Methodists. And I that, yeah, I, it is like I mean, I'm Methodist. Everything people want to emphasize about John Wesley, it's 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 the pre Aldersgate John Wesley. <laughs> like like all this stuff, none of this worked for him. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you guys not know? Like, that's either that's not John Wesley at all, or that's the John Wesley you should want to run away from. That John Wesley himself is praying you will run away from. Right? So that's I think that's a really important point. Like we, and this is why for Jens, like the way toward ecumenical conversation and the visible unity of the church is by repenting of our misapprehensions of our own traditions. Like that's where it starts. It doesn't end there, but it starts there. So he, he makes this point, right? That what he was told by Lutherans, Luther had said about faith is not in fact what Luther had said about faith. And one of the things he makes this really, I think, fascinating point that what he was told, Luther said, is that there is an, a kind of mystery at the heart of justification by faith, which is despite the fact that it's not true, God says it is that you are just, you're not true, but God says you are. And mysteriously, despite everything we think is right or wrong, it holds, right? Which may be what that woman in that comparative religion class is recoiling from, like just a sense of, well, that's a lie (laughs) or that's unjust, right? Ajin says, you know, when you actually read Luther, he does not hold that justification is fictive. He says two things, according to Jens, Luther argues two things. The first is that justification as the word of God makes true what it declares. And what it makes true is the life of Jesus in you. So let me read just a couple of lines here. Believing in God just is fulfillment of the first table of the commandments. If you believe in God, you're just doing what the law required, what Torah required, what the commandments say we must do. And 
Hearing the gospel makes us personally righteous. Hearing the gospel makes us personally righteous. I become what is addressed to me, what I, mo- what I most hearken to. Therefore, if what we attend to is the word of God, we are merely thereby shaped by the word's content. Hearkening to the word, we are constituted as persons by the good things the word communicates, peace and love and righteousness and so on. Thus, when God declares those who hearken to the gospel righteous, that is a judgment of fact. When the sinner, when the sinner is grasped by the gospel, he or she is straightforwardly made right, made true. The puny sins with which they still try to shape their lives cannot stand against God's righteousness inhabiting them. Justification of the sinner is a mystery, not a paradox, not a fiction. So is that is that what you're saying too? Even though I know you're not quoting Jens, but is that what you're arguing or is that a different line of argument? No, I, I think that's, I mean, I think that's right. And um, Jensen writes elsewhere about um, justification just being the doctrine of predestination rendered in the passive. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's that God changes you through the ear. Um, mm. you know, that's Luther. And, and so it's just, you know, you were transformed orally through someone else's orality. Mm. Um, and, and because it's God doing it, 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 it has to be true. Um, and so I think that's, um, there's not as much Jensen in this book as there would be if I wrote it now. Um, but when you do the follow-up, uh, yeah. But I do think, um, yeah, I mean, the, the one insight I, I, I do have from Jensen, I've always had, um, is that the doctrine of justification is primarily a rule of speech um, that we have to communicate yes. the things, the things of Jesus in a way that it, it, it's received as good news. Um, and, and so if it's, if it's not, so I, I think as a preacher, I'm very careful to ha- like have that govern. Yeah. So um, this, that's right. And I think that to, to connect this back to David's questions and Chris's, I think on the one hand, we've got, how do we articulate a theology of justification that honors the biblical texts? And how do we articulate a theology of justification that honors the, the, the hearer's sense of justice? But we've got two problems here, right? There's the, is what I'm saying true to the scriptures? And then is what I'm saying, can it be heard as true or not? And how, what's, the, what's my responsibility to make that hearing possible, if, if any? I, I think this is what I love about Jensen. Re- the reason I fell in love with his work in the first place is that I felt like he was the, f- I don't, not felt like, I, I learned reading him on justification that I had heard justification by faith and he knew how I had misheard it mm-hmm. and was able to name the mishearing and then offer an alternative. This is what, just as I just read, like you're hearing justification by faith as a fiction. God is lying about you. He's saying you are something you're not. And because he's God, he can get by with that. That's what I was taught justification meant. And we were told to like that. Some people rejected, but either way, it's not what's true. <laughs> like That's not what's being claimed. Justification mm-hmm. is you are being justified by the God who makes these declarations over you as your creator. And 
So I, what I, I feel like Jens was able to do is articulate a doctrine that is scandalous, but liberate me from false scandal. I was rightly understanding a misunderstanding of the doctrine, right? I should have been scandalized by that. But what's actually being offered is scandalous, but not in that way. It's not, it's, it's a, it's a, con, a confrontation with my sense of justice. It's not an absence of justice. Yes. But it's still, the, it's still the presence of, uh, apart from works. Yeah. It, 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 it's God's justice, right? Which is, it does satisfy my heart's deepest longings for justice, but it completely overwhelms the categories I was working with and, and the way in which I thought that justice was going to be brought about, what it would even mean. So I think the like that's where a book like this, anytime we engage anything by Paul, I think we get right into the mess of these. Uh, David, why don't you, what, what, where does this put you? What, what are the questions that are rising in you because of this? Yeah, I mean, I, I maybe too late in the day to confess my own lack of reading of of, of Jensen. So, <laughs> um, but uh, we're going to pause this podcast, everybody. We're all going to go away <laughs> for about a month, read Jensen, yeah. and we'll come back and pick it up. But hearing Jensen secondhand through you, which I obviously trust, um, I mean, essentially, what he's arguing for, you know, what he's arguing for there is what Paul is saying in Galatians two. Uh, uh, the way that Paul is framing it, in my mind, is that ultimately justification has come in the form of killing him. You know, like Paul is dead. Right? He has been obliterated by the grace of God. You know, I mean, John Barclay's language of bankruptcy is a little less uh, aggressive in that in that point. But but, you know, I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. So so it's not some imputed sense of. Okay, God's just done some double column accounting here, and he's cleverly letting me off with something that he knows I'm guilty of, that I know I'm guilty of, that everyone knows I'm guilty of, but we'll just pretend it didn't happen, you know, and 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 go for our mugshots anyway. Um, you know, actually what we've got going on here is there is a a ceasing of Paul being and a, and a new, you know, a resurrection a re- resurrection of Paul that is now the Paul who is fully encapsulated in the Son of God who loved me by dying for me. To the extent that the very next passage, Paul's kind of recollection of visiting the Galatians was it was Christ himself visually portrayed as crucified before you. Uh, and I, so I think you can get to what Jens is saying, like, and, and, and I don't mean any patronizing here to Jensen, but with Galatians 2 alone, you could get to that if you were to say, okay, I'm just going to take this chapter and really wrestle what Paul's actually saying here. Not what I've heard Paul's supposed to be saying here, not what has come through various forms that Paul's saying here, but what is Paul saying here culminates in the actual justification of Paul via him being completely enveloped in Christ's faithful work. I mean, I don't know if that makes sense with, with lines up with Jensen, but that's what I think Paul is definitely attempting to communicate, or at least that is a way that I can make sense of what Paul is saying in Galatians. Yeah. And, and I think, um, I mean, it gets to why Paul is so, um, uh, coarse and exercised about getting the message right. Right. Because, because it, because it's a message that is the power of God to, to, to rectify us and, and, and the world. Um, and so to, to get it wrong is to put 
put the power of God on the shelf and exchange it mm. for, um, a, you know, a religious message. So, yeah. So I, th- I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think, yeah, that's incredibly important. But one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about here is talking about justification. And I agree with, you know, with Jensen's take, but again, I'm thinking about people in my, in my church and this sort of, you know, I mean, what we're saying here that God is actually doing right. Chris, to your point is it is scandalous. We're not scandalized by the right things, right? But this, this is, this is scandalous. And so, Jason, just as as a pastor, how are you engaging your own parishioners when you are like you live with this recognition, you prepare with this recognition that this this is kind of good news, full stop. Um, it is this quid without without the quo. But when you have your own parishioners who are like, yeah, but like pastor. I'm hearing this word every week and my life still looks exactly the same. (laughs) So what's actually happening to me? Right. Yeah. No, I, um, yeah. And people do ask, people do ask that. Um, and that's where, you know, I think it's important too, that we're, we're, uh, you know, Stanley Harawas is, is right that we are the last people who should be evaluating um, faithfulness. Yes. Or or our own sinfulness. So this is a, it's a slow rolling promise of transformation. Um, and it's something that we are the, probably in the least clear position to perceive. So yeah, so I, I think it, it's there's just a, a communal aspect to it, and it's a Sunday to Sunday thing too. Um, that you know, it's this is the good news. You're probably not going to believe it come Wednesday. So you, like you have to be be here again next Sunday, and yep. slowly but surely, um, that, that will change you. Maybe not yeah. change your circumstances. Right. The, you know, the promise is, is different than false promises. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't. Yeah. It's not very useful. Is it <laughs> like it's no, no. And I think that's, um, <laughs> you know, like one of the great things that Jensen does, does so well too, is, is, you know, the gospel is not just, the gospel is an invitation to worship the true God and just so is, is, uh, an exorcism, you know, it's a, an exorcism. It's an evacuation of, of all the false gods. And, and one of the false gods, one of the barren deities in our culture is, is this, is this desire for utility, prosperity, health and happiness. So you know, a lot of our desire, God's around God. Yeah, I think, gosh, to come back to the point about scandal again, 
the scandal of the gospel is not, it seems to me, Jason, you, you respond as you would say it. The scandal of the gospel is not that God is playing fast and loose with right and wrong, good and evil. The scandal is not God is God and you are not, so deal with the fact that he can do what he wants. The scandal of the gospel is that God is humble and he means to make you his equals. And that is what's being promised in justification. As Jensen says, which as Paul says, it, as Moses says, God is in you. Like when he declares you righteous, he doesn't, he's not saying you are in right relation to him in spite of the fact that you're living sinfully. He is saying, you have my life in you. I, I am you and you are me. Like Christ is living in you. Galatians 2, right? The life I live I, is Christ's life happening in me. That what's, what's scandalous about justification is that God is saying, there is no you apart from me. I don't know myself apart from you. And I, I think that so much of our, our preaching so far undersells that, that God means to make you his equal. God means to make you righteous in every way that he is. I mean, as Maxis will say, God means to make you God. Yeah, yeah. And if we're preaching something other than that, some weakened version of that, then often I think people turning away from it or people running to it is, is bad news, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like the people, if you're running to a gospel that's less than that, why? That's religion, Jensen would say. And if you're turning away from it, maybe you should turn away from it because what's being promised is, actually promised, is something you know, beyond all we could ask or think. And maybe to, to Chris's point about why don't our lives look like that? Well, because think about what's what's being done here. Like if we're offering something you know, like this will help you feel better about yourself. Well then, yeah, that should work, get to work pretty quickly. But if what we're telling people is you're going to become like God, you're going to become one with God. You're going to be God's co-rulers, God's co-equals in the sun. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that doesn't happen between Sunday and Sunday. Like, like maybe that takes all of time, not just your (laughs) lifetime, but all lifetimes, you know, like I think, I think we should, oh, and maybe, and maybe you don't even have the categories to like assess how, how that's happening. Um, you know, it's not just that we don't have the desire for it; it's like we don't have necessarily the perception for it. But I think, I think the scandal of justification is, I mean, the scandal of grace is, is you know, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and that's going to happen apart from any earning or deserving on your part. Like, like it's, it's all one-sidedly God. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and Jason, is it, would it be fair to say like it, it's one-sidedly God in a way that like, and I maybe, does Jensen say, like, I can't, I can't remember if Jensen actually says it like this, but like God does so that we can, or, or maybe to say it differently, it's one-sidedly God and God is who God is in a way that liberates us to be who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, and and I think what happens with justification often, so often it just disappears from the language of the church um, such that, uh, you know, we treat the church like it's like the Jesus Memorial Society. Um, 
it's up up to us to continue the movement that the dead Jesus started. Um, we do so it disappears in that way, um, or it gets turned into um, a transaction where we're still in charge. Um, so it's you know it's it's my it's the strength of my piety, it's the strength of my believing, it's the sincerity of my faith um, that somehow makes this whole mechanism work, um, which is not at all <laughs> uh, the message. Um, and is a self-righteousness that's, that's poisonous, I think. I, I wonder sometimes, I'm thinking about this story again, just to come back to the story you brought up, Christopher, about the, the, the student visitor who, who's, who's amongst their closing comments to you, if I recall correctly. So please correct me, uh, Jason, if I'm, if I'm not recalling well. The, they say, you know, everybody thinks that all religions are the same. But if what you're saying about Christianity is what Christianity is, then it is not the same as other religions. And I, I, whenever I read Paul, I'm often struck by that where we want a lot of theology to end seems to be where he wants his theology to begin. Right? Um, mm. I, I'm, I'm really influenced in this by Douglas Campbell, uh, Mm-hmm. His work on 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 Paul, he frames it as retrospective theology. That actually, yeah. Paul gets an answer that he then tries to figure out what the question was. Because if if Christ <laughs> crucified and resurrection is the answer, then I clearly, you know, clearly my well, I thought the questions were were wrong. But what are the questions? Yeah. yeah. But 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 I love this notion that Christianity is something that gives us to a sol- a solution to a problem that we may not have realized we had. And I wonder sometimes if much theology and biblical studies across the years has been trying to convince ourselves that the gospel is the answer to our problem, <laughs> rather than accepting that the gospel is the answer to the problem we didn't realize we had. Which leads me to to kind of wonder sometimes if, and I say this cautiously, but if Paul is not as interested in talking about salvation as we would like him to be, because in his mind, his first encounter with this concept was it being solved so his bigger question seems to be how does the life of christ that is now in us shape us and form us and and as a result why is it so important that people in galatia don't get circumcised why is it so important that that men and women are considered above even creation equal in this new life that we've got uh, and and i hear a lot of the time our wrestle is to answer the question of how can we be saved? And and I think that speaks into our Western guilt complexes and anxiety complex. But I, I'm curious as to how you resonate with with that sort of idea. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, th- that connects just to the the stumbling block nature of the message, right? That mm. um, I don't know that we um, we treat with enough seriousness what a seismic shift has to happen in Saul for Paul to say something like, you know, neither circumcision or uncircumcision matters. Yeah. That like, yeah. the, like behind, behind a statement like that is a whole yeah. world having ended yeah. Um, yeah. And, and been up and been upended um, mm. such that, um, you know, if you're, you know, you know that if you treat scripture in a sort of like, well, you know, clearly this is what God was up to all along. Like, no, 
like because Paul had to like go back and reread like his entire his, all of his assumptions. Um, so yeah, so I, I think um, to have you know to have an encounter as Paul does with the risen Christ and to and to be met with that answer mm. um, disorients all questions. And maybe that's a space just to ask you about. There's a there's a, a wonderful phrase that you have um, that appears regularly. So I wonder if this is the space for you to just even unpack it and talk about it because we are talking about your book. So a great space for you to do that. A beautiful phrase. Nobody ever drifts towards the gospel. Um, yeah. And 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 at some level, it feels like that's what you're picking at there when we talk about encounter and revelation and, and apocalyptic even. Yeah, I think. Um... You know, I, I I minister in a different space than you all do, probably. Um, and so I think for me, what's important about Paul is, is <laughs> A, just to actually read him. Um, <laughs> that um, I think, I think seminary generally disempowers people to know how to preach Paul. Um you know, so like you're you're taught the ins and outs of various new perspective uh, interpretations. Uh, you're given like socio political critiques of Paul, so that he becomes problematic. Um, and so, so I think a lot of people just don't even know what what to do with him. Uh, and so, so I think, um, so it, it starts with taking Paul seriously, um, taking seriously the nature of his apostolic authority. Um, but the risen Christ like appears to him and, and schools him for a period of time uh, and to take take seriously that those kind of encounters happen in the world. Um, and so uh, I, I'm just so I'm very aware of how um, I mean, Jensen says this, that, you know, how how hollowed out by secularism much of the mainline tradition has become. And so uh, so that's. And then just the, the, the gospel has been assumed into invisibility in much of the church. And so I think that's why that phrase is so important, um, that without intentionally pointing people to the promise or iterations of the Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, it disappears. Um, and because we're, you know, yeah, we're, we're attracted to various red and blue versions of the law. And promises of of utility and, and you know, issues of behavior modification and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think, yeah, there's always drift away from the gospel and towards um, the pagan gods. So I I, I want to I want to reiterate the point I was making about the scandal being what God is offering us is too much for us. It's it's not that God is playing fast and loose with right and wrong or our intuitive sense of good and evil. It's that what God is doing is too good for us to handle. Right? It, it's yeah. too much, right? That what it turns out that God is so humble, he means for us to share equality with him, to share his nature, to become partakers of the divine nature, to become in the language of the apocalypse, sharers of his throne. It, you know, it, I'm going to grant those who, to those who overcome a seat with me on my throne. 
right? Like that's, that's what he's up to doing. That kind of, that's a scandal that God means to make you God, like in the language of, of the Cappadocians or in the language of Maximus. And I, I stepped out of the room for a moment because I wanted to grab Bonifer's Christology lectures, another Lutheran, by the way, and listen, listen to what he says again, like we, they're all inconveniently Lutheran though. Right. So it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, right. Yeah. There's a lot to say about that. Um, <laughs> So this God, uh, we should not say God became human. We should not speak of God becoming human, but of the God who became human. For the former is a how question. So famously in his Christology lectures, he's saying, don't ask how. The question is who? What is that? The God who became human is the God of glory. God glorifies himself in the human. This is the ultimate mystery of the Trinity. God regards himself as the God who became human. God's self-glorification in the human is the glorification of the human, which shall have eternal life with God, the three in one. Therefore, it is not right to see God's becoming human as judgment upon humankind. God remains human even after the judgment. God's becoming human is God's message about the glorification of God, who honors himself by being in human form. He honors himself by being in human form. Right? Now, if you connect that, so that's Luther. That's what Luther is arguing in Galatians, because that is what I think Paul is saying. And what Jensen is saying is justification is the way in which that, that reality is inaugurated into my life. That's what's happening when that word is declared over me. And that is incredibly scandalous but it's not the scandal of god lies about us yeah yeah it's it's an it's an altogether different kind of challenge to to believe it's too good to believe it's not something that scrambles our sense of right and wrong in in the sense that god is playing with those categories yeah i was just um i'm preaching on revelation 10 this sunday um or John is like Ezekiel told to eat the scroll. And I'm like, and that's just such a great, that if, if, you know, all the attributes of God are, are reducible down to each other or identifiable with each other to, to, to eat the word is, is to ingest God. Um, and so like the, the, the prophet becomes the, the active agency of, of God in the world. Like it's this event. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, I think you're right that that we um we try we reduce the promise down to something that is manageable and conceivable, and we we, we make the good news something less than as good as it is. Yeah, and that wonderful line that David held up, you know, we no one drifts to the toward the gospel. Well, no, of course you can't. You you the the, the translation that has to happen there is is too much for anyone. Like n- no one drifts towards the gospel, but you can't hike there either. Our pilgrimage. there, <laughs> Right. There is no, like it's impossible. <laughs> Purposely or yeah. unpurposely. Like it's only something God could do. Only God would be humble enough and crazy enough to think of something like that. Right. I, I mean, I think we have to take Paul much more seriously when he says what God is doing is beyond what we can ask or think or dare to imagine. 
Mm-hmm. Like, well, God, like God is not saving us from our sins. Like any one of us wants to help people in that way. That's not glorious. That's not scandalous. Like what's being offered is just, I don't know. I think reading your book, because it thrusts me back on that question of justification and back on Paul. I mean, I just think we're embarrassingly, we're embarrassing ourselves with how small we're making the gospel. Mm-hmm. people. And what you're doing is nudging us back toward, no, 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 no. Like this is staggeringly good news, like mind-blowingly good news. And it's um, why for me, so if the gospel is a word that gives us Christ, of course, it naturally leads to the table um, because what, you know, the word that we deliver has to be as, as good and unbelievable and, and supernatural uh, as what's given in bread and wine. And there are too many, too many, too much preaching takes away or reduces or waters down or makes ordinary what we otherwise give at the table. I, I, I love that. And and I, I love how that takes us. I mean, as everyone was talking just there, I was thinking about the final few verses of Galatians where the real scandal, we've talked about this crucifixion of the person, you know, the, the, the end of the person, the new life in Christ. And the real scandal, is and I think all of the interesting bits in Galatians are actually in the last seven verses. And, uh, and uh, but uh, as a friend of mine who just finished a Galatian commentary said, most commentators are tired by the time they get there, so you don't often <laughs> see a lot of a lot of exciting stuff about that. And um, and and so I, I, I love you, start at the end, right? Isn't that what you yeah, exactly. No, hundred percent, hundred percent. Because well, I mean, I think in I think in the last couple of verses, Paul makes the point that actually what everybody thinks Galatians about is quite clearly not what Galatians about. We think that Galatians is about a theological problem. Paul makes the point at the end, and you pick it up in your book, and not not many people do. Actually, the problem here is not about the theology. It's about what your being circumcised will do for the status of the people asking for that. Right? It's about how they show off, look what we've done. Right? Uh, mm-hmm. So this works thing kind of sneaks its way back in through multiple levels. But this real scandal that what you end up with is that at the end of this, it's the world which gets crucified. The world is crucified to me, Paul said. It's actually, so his crucifixion is the first stage, but finally God's restoration is, is way bigger than we imagine. But as you were talking, I love that contrast of they, these, uh, these agitators, these opponents, these problem makers in, in Galatia, they want you to be circumcised so that they can boast about your flesh. But may I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I love the table imagery in that, that there is always a conversation about bodies. <laughs> and and the question is, is whether whether the marks on your bodies, Galatians, are the ones which are that, that bring us together, or whether it's the it's the cross of Christ that brings us together. And I think there's Eucharistic kind of sense in all of that, because you now get that notion of, you know, I bear the marks of Jesus on my body. New creation is all that matters. So I, I love the way you bring it, that table idea, because I 
think you can, knowing Paul through Corinthians, you can feel Galatians drawing you into that place of, of unity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, amen uh, to that. <laughs> yeah, Fleming Rutledge, um, who's been a big mentor, muse for me, um, I think it's at the beginning of her Advent book and in the introduction where she talks about the problem with uh, auditory in sermons is that mm-hmm. as soon as you command or urge people to do something, uh, you know, some people will feel congratulated because they're already doing it. And mm. other people will feel shamed um, because they're not doing it and yeah. probably won't. Um, and what you've done then is, is create distinctions in the community. Mm. Um, and I think that's absolutely, it's true in Galatia. It's, it's, it's Paul's concern with the church in Rome that mm. as soon as you, um, make make the message something that we must do for god uh as soon as you demote god from being the active agent um and make it about us uh we start making distinctions amongst ourselves and community fractures and and sin uh, is let loose Mm. and it and it binds either way right i mean Mm -hmm. those who those who are like i've done it (laughs) i've accomplished it right they're they're bound in their pride and their own kind of, um, you know, living this kind of illusion of of their own self-made holiness or those who are shamed. And it strikes me that the gospel, when it goes forth, like it, it makes us humble, but it doesn't shame us. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's neither of those. It's, it's, it's not, it's not binding. Right. It is liberating. Yeah, I, it's, I think it's Dave Zoll who joked about, you know, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but that doesn't stop us from measuring distances. Um, you know, and I think a lot, of, a lot of Christian speech implicitly encourages people to measure distances. Um, and, and that's, that's uh, Paul would say that's, you know, a false gospel. Well, talk to me, Jason, a little bit then about this question about Christ's faithfulness. Right? Because this this is the foil. If I'm if I'm understanding how you're presenting this, this is the foil that ultimately it's Richard Hayes who first really kind of throws this down this gauntlet down to the academic reader. That oftentimes our theologies of faith in Christ become our we're anti-works. We say it's faith, not works. But then we really present faith as a work. So it becomes essentially, yep. it's not works. It's one work, this very specific work, which is believe these particular things in this particular way. And I, so I, you know, full confession, I come from, uh, I'm British, educated in the European side of things. This question about faith in Christ and the faithfulness of Christ is is not one that's really won over European audiences, right? But but we, but I think the premise and the points that are being made are, are fundamentally valuable to the debate that, that, that you're having as to as to what do you do when you create that vacuum to say, well, actually, we're all looking for distinction. And in the place of distinction, Paul appears to me to place this notion of, of, of Christ's work on our behalf and in our space. But I think if someone's, I'm trying to imagine a reader, you know, reading their, their Bibles and, and they get to that section of your book where you're, you do a great job of summarizing a pretty lengthy, like a 30, 40 year argument in biblical studies into a couple of paragraphs about 
why what your text says about Christ's faith, about our faith in Christ in Galatians 2, might need a little bit of explanation to understand exactly what Paul's getting at there. Um, and do you want to unpack that a little bit? Because I can see that this sort of regular reader going, well, wait, wait, what are you doing with text there, Jason? Yeah, and I, uh, whenever I bring up that faith in, faith of distinction, I get a lot of pushback. Um, mm. A lot of pushback. Um, because we really do want to be in charge. <laughs> um, um, but I think a lot of, I think a lot of, of Christianity, Protestant Christianity, uh, by emphasizing faith in Christ reproduces an even worse kind of anxiety, uh, that Luther was trying to, to remedy. Um, mm. because, you know, like, I mean, Chris can go to confession and, and, do certain acts of penance and he can know that he actually did them. Um, like telling people to put faith in their faith. Um, but like, what, what does that, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> you, yeah. you can't measure that. You, you, you can ever know, uh, that you really believe what you think you believe. Um, mm. or maybe you don't believe it, you know, like, and so it just, um, and so I think for some, it creates this, this anxiety, um, about whether you know how how a good god regards them um and for others it it i think it leads them to de-emphasize um the faithfulness of christ and instead um busy themselves in in christian works that they can see and, and measure mm. I mean, you, you remind me of something that I can't, I can't now find the reference to, but it's something that, uh, that Campbell said years ago in one of his early books, but I'll, I'll replicate as much as I can from memory. And uh, that, that what we've done often is we say, okay, it's not about works. It's not what you do. And everybody says, amen to that. Instead, it's about your faith. And Campbell makes the point that pastorally, this is huge because the one thing that all of us have that we are fundamentally not very confident about is our faith. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, we are racked with doubt. And actually what we've done is perhaps a disservice to us as, as people, because at least when there was things to do, we knew what the things were to do and we could follow the list. And not that he was supporting the list, obviously, but we could at least follow the list and go done, 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 done. What we've replaced it with in a lot of popular Protestantism anyway, is you know, you must simply, purely, and only have unshakable faith, <laughs> and, uh, and then you'll be fine with God. Which is a worse work than we could ever have. Oh, it's and, it, and it's and it's and it's and it's 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 the it's it's the language of conditionality, even if mm -hmm. it's not explicitly mm -hmm. put in if-then statements. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so it's it's you know, you will be justified if you have faith um, mm -hmm. rather than in Jesus Christ. God is making all things new. Yeah. Trust and believe. Um, yes. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a little word. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not a word on which like your, 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 your destiny hinges. Mm. Um, you know, so it's, it's everything has been done, will be done is being done. Mm. such that there's nothing for you to do but trust yeah. and and i love I, I mean when i've worked with galatians i've actually used the word trust 
around that debate about how do you translate faith in Christ, faithfulness of. Actually, I've actually preferred to use the word trust to render the Greek notion of pistis because I, I think that actually speaks to what's going on, that you as a human are having to actually trust that Christ's word, that there is no distinction, that you don't need to measure how far one fails to use, you know, Dave Zal's point, that, you know, that there, these these previous categories are now bankrupt. That requires trust, actually, because you are now going to shape your life on the basis that that's true <laughs> and, uh, and that that's different. And, and, and you're, does and that, that make yeah, sense? And, and, yeah, and I think um, translating faith as allegiance works in the same way, right? Because, yes, yes. like, the church exists among powers and principalities um, that, that are, 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 are vying for a, uh, an otherwise kind of allegiance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's it's um, it's it's Jesus's allegiance to the Father and His kingdom that mm-hmm. is that is you know the remaking of the world. Yes, and then and then our allegiance to the idea that there is now no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, mm-hmm. male and female, which which is actually a really hard allegiance <laughs> because all of society, including our churches, will often want to add a. Uh, yes but to yeah. that and then we fall right back down the hill again don't we yeah that's really important no I, I i love that brewer yeah i i know um i know we've got to got to wrap up and since <laughs> there's power washing and or maybe a jet outside of the good bishop chris's <laughs> window um let me let me help out and wrap up for him but before we do um jason if you if you happen to have your your book right there i i wondered if there's this litany that you offer um on page 55 in into the next into the next page Mm -hmm. and i i wondered if you would just read that for us and and say I, I may end up having a question, but 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 just say a word kind of before we close with that. Okay. Um, yeah. This. Do you know Julian Hart, Chris? Do you know of him? Uh, so so this litany comes at the end of a story that Julian Hart told me. Um, so Julian Hart taught theology and philosophy at Yale Divinity School. And then he was invited by the University of Virginia to start their Department of Religious Studies. And so while at Yale, he taught Stanley and, you know, a bunch of other people. Uh, But when I was transitioning from college at UVA to seminary, Princeton Seminary, uh, I, one of the jobs I had was working at this kind of upscale retirement place that had like a restaurant. Um, where people would come and, and eat every night. And I met Julian Hart there. Um, and he, he knew I was going on to seminary. Uh, and so he, he, I would go up to his apartment about once a week and we'd have Sherry and he would just tell me stories um, and tell me people to read. And uh, he was a brilliant writer. Um, but so the litany comes at the end of a story he told me. Uh, here are the good news. Whatever your story, the hurt you can't let go of, the gossip and backbiting and double talk, the forgiveness you withheld until it was too late, the doubts that linger, the disappointments you still resent, 
the relationship you let fester, the lies you tell to shroud your addiction, the truth you're too cowardly to come out with, the handout you withheld, the frustration that others aren't as faithful as you, the gift you gave with strings attached, the if bombs you throw down as conditions of your love, the prodigal you won't welcome home, the prejudice, the self-righteousness and sanctimony that feels good for a second, especially when it's about politics, but then it sticks on you like a bad smell on your shoe. The secret you keep hidden in the dark corner closet of your heart. Whatever your story, what story? Christ Jesus has set you free from that story by becoming that story for you. Some good news. Thank you, Jason. Yeah. Thank you for giving me time. I wonder, um, I wonder if you would pray for us. Yeah. For us, over us. <laughs> Holy and gracious Father, we confess and repent of all of our reductions of your good promise made flesh in Mary's son. We pray that through your spirit, you would do what we yet cannot see. Not only by making us a part of his story, but by making us a part of you. So bless and keep us this day. In your son's name we pray. Amen.